Blog Talk Radio. You're definitely going to walk away from that show as well 
learning a lot. Um, last week's show, you should have learned some things. This week's show, same thing. You know, I learned some things, you know, while researching for this show that I didn't know about. So, you know, I'm going to share some of that with you today. All right, so talk about part two, which is today, part three next week. Now, after that, we were going to go into our Confronting and Destroying Myths series, but, you know, I'm going to push that back a week. The week after next, we're going to talk about another topic, and it's called Black Churches Equal Black Problems with a question mark at the end of it. Okay, there's a reason why there's a question mark there. So Black Churches Equal Black Problems, question mark. And there are some issues that definitely need to be addressed, and that's the reason why I'm putting that before the Confronting and Destroying Myths series. But with the Confronting and Destroying Myths series, it should be very enlightening. We're going to talk about homophobia in the black community and church. We're going to talk about these stereotypes of laziness and fraud in the black community. We're going to also talk about, you know, sexuality in the black community as well as um, the charge that black feminism supports white supremacy. And that came from these black nationalists out there, you know, the ones that called us Negro bed wenches. You know, I didn't even know what it was. Someone had to explain it to me. And then we're going to talk about ad hominem attacks directed at the black community as well as the black church. And then we are going to talk about slavery. And basically, you know, were the blacks happy? Did they give their consent to be indentured servants? You know, were they apathetic? So this should be interesting. You know, we're going to come at that from, you know, a variety of different angles. And we just want you to be a part of the conversation. And so, yeah, I had someone ask me, you know, why was I posting so many links about racism and race? And that's because this is the series that we're talking about. It's surrounding this. And most of the links that I post coincide with, you know, whatever topics that I happen to be covering on the show. But I also post links about other things as well. It's just that you're going to see more race links because this is what we're dealing with, and I want people to go out and research this for themselves. I want you to go out and find the information out for you, fact-checking. That's what I want you to do, you know, and, you know, we encourage that. We appreciate it. And so that's what's going on with that there. We have some announcements to make. WLP, the Women's Leadership um, Project, which is part of Dr. Hutchinson's, um, well, it is her program in California, in which they mentor um, young ladies, you know, high school, you know, young ladies, high school age, and give them opportunities. Well, they had a fundraiser, and they still, they're a couple of hundred dollars away. I'm going to post the link on my wall, and we're just asking that you guys go out and support them, the WLP program, and also support the scholarship program. And the PayPal for, I believe both of them are, blackskeptics at gmail.com. Again, that's blackskeptics at gmail.com. That's their PayPal email address. And I'll post information for the WLP program again after the show, because I've posted it a couple of times, but we'll go ahead and post it again to make sure we get them over the hump. And also for those that are interested in donating money to the scholarship program, always taking donations for that, you know, and again, we are a 501c3 organization, 
so your donations are tax deductible. We helped five young people with scholarships last year, and they're in school, and we're going to hear from them at the end of the school year. Well, not the end of the semester, but next semester. And, you know, again, you know, for those that have contributed, we appreciate, you know, every one of you. And for those that may not have had the means to contribute, but, you know, you sent you know, um, some well wishes and all of that. We appreciate that as well. So, again, um, we want to make sure that we have scholarship money available for, you know, a new group of people next year. And, you know, there are some additions that we want to add on to the program, and we need your support. So, again, we're just putting that out there, blackskeptics at gmail.com. That is our PayPal account. So please, you know, if you have the opportunity or the means, we would appreciate it. And, again, that's tax deductible. So just kind of want to let you guys know about that. And, um, you know, we post the pictures and all of that. But it's more to come, you know, regarding, you know, the young people that, you know, we are helping in the community. And it's important that we support these young people. We definitely need to support them. And let's see here. There's a lot going on. Um, I'm going to tell you about a few things that are happening. February 1st of 2014, February 1st, hey, we will be holding the AAH conference in Washington, D.C. So African Americans for Humanism will be taking place February 1st in Washington, D.C., and you can find that information on the AAH site. I will post that again later, but that promises to be exciting. I definitely will be there for the AAH conference again February 1st of next year, 2014. And, you know, the information is online. You can find it on a CFI site, and I believe it's on the AAH site as well, but I'll post the links just so you can find the information out. But you're going to have people coming from all over the country. So, you know, if you're able to, please come out, and, you know, we look forward to seeing you. There will also be another conference, another physical conference, in Los Angeles, California, next October. So October 2014, um, People of Color Beyond Faith, along with Black Skeptics Group, will be holding the first physical conference in Los Angeles, California. So it will be our first conference, and, you know, we definitely look forward to seeing you there as well. That should be exciting. We're having people fly in for that conference. So you'll have one on the East Coast in Washington, D.C., and you'll have another one on the West Coast in Los Angeles, California. So we're telling you a year in advance so you can start saving your money up, and, you know, we're going to have a really good time. You know, I'm looking forward to both conferences, you know, but get a chance to experience some of that nice, sunny Southern California sun. So, you know, it, it should be a lot of fun. You know, the Black Skeptics Group, great group of people. And, again, we'll have people coming from all over the country, Black Skeptics Chicago, um, the Houston area, Black Nonbelievers, um, you know, from all over. So, you know, we welcome you to join us. Um, October of 2014, one year from now. So in addition to the physical conference, People of Color Beyond Faith, we're also holding an online conference, Valentine's Day weekend. So that's February 14th, 15th, and 16th. We'll have an online conference, and this will be on Google Chat, Fed Live to YouTube. 
And we're bringing this and we're giving this back to the community because we understand and we know not everybody will be able to make it to these physical conferences for whatever reason. So we wanted to give something back to the community, especially, you know, sectors of the secular community that have been pretty much marginalized. We wanted to give something back to you. And, again, it's people of color beyond faith. So this will be very diverse. We're going to have, you know, multiple cultures, ethnicities, nationalities participating in this conference. So this is for you. This is for you. All of that will be made available on YouTube, and you can watch it at your own leisure. You can watch it live. We will have people um, manning the YouTube page, so we'll be able to answer your questions and even pose some of the questions, you know, as the conference is going along, as well as on Google, and as well as Twitter as well. Our Twitter handle for any questions, comments, and suggestions that you may have is hashtag people, I'm sorry, POC Beyond Chat. Again, hashtag POC Beyond Chat. And with that, we also host a weekly Twitter chat. Every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we host a Twitter chat for an hour. And again, you know, questions, comments, suggestions, conversation, what have you. Every Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we have someone um, available to converse with you. So we're looking forward to that. Also, November 24th of 2013, November 24th of this year, which is three weeks from today, we will be holding People of Color Beyond Faith. We will be holding our very first webcast webisode, and we will be talking about basically debunking post-racialism in the secular community. And again, debunking post-racialism in the secular community. This will take place live online through Google Chat, YouTube, and we will be taking questions and answering, and this is an aggregate project of black skeptics group, black free thinkers in Houston area, black non-believers. And so um, Dr. Hutchinson, Dr. Sakibu Hutchinson will be moderating this talk, and we will we'll be bringing these talks to you monthly. So every month we will have a different talk with different moderators, different subject matters, and, again, we want you to be a part of that conversation. We are so excited to be able to bring this to you, and this should be exciting, exciting. So, you know, again, Dr. Hutchison will be moderating the conference or the webcast or webisode that will be taking place November 24th. I've posted um, – the flyer online. We're going to post it again later on today. I've been putting it everywhere. So we want you all to be a part of the conversation. You are important to us, and we want to make sure that you guys know that and you understand that. So there is a lot going on. We're going to have the weekly Twitter chat with people of color beyond faith, as well as the monthly webcast in addition to the conference that we're holding next October. And also we want to make sure that we acknowledge AAH and conference that's taking place on February the 1st because we will have representatives there as well. And so we're excited about everything that's happening. So that is, you know, pretty much the announcements. That's all I can think of right now. If I remember anything else a little bit later, I will bring that to you. Oh, 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 I forgot. Um, Raina, Raina Rhodes, um, who hosts the RSSP, she has a GoFundMe page out there. She's 
wanting to go back to pursue her Ph.D. That information is on my wall. We've been posting that around. Um, application fees are expensive. I didn't realize those application fees were that expensive. So if you all can, you know, give, that would be wonderful. I mean, even if it's only $5, that, you know, she would be grateful for that, and it will help her towards her dream of getting her Ph.D. I'm sure it's going to be in neurobio something, but just <laughs> because she's a neuroscientist, I'm teasing. But, yeah, you know, um, if you can please, you know, try to give a couple of dollars um, if it's in your budget. But, you know, we appreciate it. If nothing else, send her a little note encouraging her um, to let her know that, you know, we encourage her and we're proud of her and the endeavors that she's pursuing, you know, standards of excellence being raised higher and higher and all of these programs that we're bringing you. So, you know, again, we thank you, you know, because we're motivated by you. So, and that's that there. But moving on, you know, there's a couple of stories in the news this week that I found interesting, and I'm not going to harp too much on them because I want to go into our subject matter today. But if you go back and listen to Friday's show, Alfred and I talked about blackface and tanning, and it was an interesting, it was a really good show. So we put some information out. I posted the links. Um, those of you who are Facebook friends with me, you can see all the links. Um, many of them I made public. So even if you aren't, you can go to my profile and find it. And I also post the links on the Black Freethinkers public page. So you can go ahead and like that page, and the information is out there. But it was one news story that I found quite interesting, and this was in the Washington Times, and it was talking about a Pentagon manual in which it states white Christian heterosexual males have unfair advantages. And I'm going to read one quote from it, and it says here, a healthy white heterosexual Christian man has unfair advantages, and the U.S. military has unfair advantages over other soldiers, according to a training manual approved by the Pentagon. Simply put, a healthy white heterosexual male receives many unearned advantages of social privilege, whereas a black homosexual atheist female in poor health receives many unearned disadvantages of social privilege. And, you know, this is just interesting. This is part of the Defense Equal Opportunity Management Institute, and it's a training program. But I thought that was interesting. This was approved by the Pentagon. So that's on my wall. I made that public as well. You may want to go out there and take a look at that. Um, you know, again, like I said, I found that quite interesting. There are a number of interesting links on the wall, and um, we put those there to provoke thought and conversation. So, you know, I hope that you all are, you know, getting the information out of it that we're putting in there for you. It's the reason why I post links that I do on the wall. Anyway, we're going to move on and get into our subject matter today, Privilege Mutiny, Part 2, Inner City Blues. And basically, just to kind of recap last week, we talked about you know, the political and social climate in this country. Um, and we talked about the race riots, the insurrection. We talked about Wilmington, you know, which was the first coup d'etat and the only coup d'etat in this country. It is the only time that a government entity has been overthrown. 
and we put that information out there. Um, one of my Facebook friends is actually making a documentary about this, and we're excited about that. So we told him if he tours the country, we'll put the information up and make sure we get some representatives out there from different cities because um, we want to support that endeavor. A lot of people were not aware of Wilmington, and it's not taught in the history books. And they didn't start acknowledging, you know, this incident until, you know, the past 10, 20 years. So, you know, it's important that you all go out out there and find out about this information, research it, so you can get a better understanding and understand, you know, what's been happening around us, you know. So, you know, we talked about, you know, different types of disturbances. We only talked about a few. It's too many to try to go through all of them, but we wanted to give you an idea. We talked about... Uh, Black Wall Street, we talked about, you know, Rosewood, and we talked about the hard scrabble riots and the abolition, abolitionist riots, and those are very important for you all to understand. Um, we talked about Harriet Beecher Stowe and where she was when that took place and, you know, posted some great links about, you know, these race riots, you know, it had different names for it. Some people call them riots. Other people call them civil disorders, uh, mob actions, insurrections, uprisings. You know, there are a number of different, you know, names for those particular um, incidents there. But basically, you know, it was a disturbance of the peace and, you know, basically an uprising against the established authority, if you will. And with the incidents that we brought forth, um, last week, basically those incidents were directed at blacks and abolitionists and, you know, anyone that was anti-slavery. And, you know, there were other ones. I mean, there were, I even spoke about the anti-Italian, the anti-Filipino, the anti-Chinese, you know, you know, even the anti-indigenous, if you will. So, you know, I wanted to make sure that we covered, you know, a multitude of groups, even though I didn't go in depth about the other ones, but I did bring it to your attention, and I want you to go out and research it. Um, there's a lot of xenophobia in this country. You know, if you're not a wasp, you're suspect. So we just want you to go out and look this up. Um, you know, when they use the word riot, it's kind of broad, broad. So, you know, when we bring you these words, go and look it up, look up the definition and understand what's happening. But yeah, you know, um, in the information that we brought you last week, they were basically racially motivated mobs and they pretty much were attacking blacks. And it had quite a bit to do with um, economics. And it's important that you understand that there is an economic um, kind of underbelly behind all of this. And so with that being said, I want to talk a little bit about urban rebellions. Now, I know some of you are out there saying, what exactly is an urban rebellion? And basically, an urban rebellion is when inner city, metro, urban or, you know, uh, people in the city, primarily African-Americans, and we can add Latinos to that as well, people of color, um, they rebel against the system. And it's a political and social upheaval. And, you know, we've had people try to call them riots. No, not exactly, because they weren't necessarily geared or directed at a particular group of people. 
And what happens is, you know, these rebellions are really in protest, you know, of the current status quo. It's about confronting racism, police brutality, and injustice. And that's what we're dealing with today. You see what's happening up in New York and across the country, really, with this stop and frisk. Look at what's happening with the young people not being able to find jobs. Um, the, The Obama administration tried to implement some programs, you know, to create jobs and employment for the young people. They are the highest unemployed group in this country. And a lot of these you know, urban rebellions are generally young people, young adults that get angry. They're angry because there are no opportunities there. Economic, educational, it seems as though it's being wiped away. You know, the cost of college and education now, you know, it's really no one can afford it. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, outrageous. And what I find interesting is, you know, uh, President Obama was encouraging people to go to junior colleges, and they made some programs and made some changes so that, you know, people can go to the junior college and be able to um, continue and pursue their education. So there are programs out there. They've made some changes with student loans. So if it creates a hardship for you, they can adjust your payment plan. And, you know, the whole thing is, is it's a lot to deal with. It's a lot to... Um, take in, and it's a lot to research, but um, there are, you know, a lot of disparities in this country. Um, It's just interesting, you know, Thomas Segrew once argued the passage of the Civil Rights Act was a beginning, not an end, and we still have a long way to go. We still have a long way to go. There's a lot of anger in communities of color, and that's one of the factors in these racial uprisings. And, again, we still have issues with lack of jobs. We still have issues with police brutality, injustice across this country. And, as a matter of fact, it's gotten worse. And all I'm saying is to keep, you know, an eye on these things. And I'm going to quote Tahisi Coates, um, you know, the um, writer, and basically he was talking about a few things in an article that he had, but this part stood out for me. And he said, America, that bears the scars of redlining, blockbusting, and urban renewal. The ghost of those policies haunts us in a wealth gap between blacks and whites that has actually gotten worse over the past 20 years. But much worse, it haunts black people with a kind of invisible violence that is given till only when the victim happens to be an Oscar winner. The promise of America is that those who play by the rules, who who observe the norms of the middle class, will be treated as such. But this injunction is only half enforced when it comes to black people, in large part because we were never meant to be part of the American story which is interesting, and this was basically, he was talking about what happened to Forrest Whitaker, and basically he was saying that, you know, we like to tell ourselves that racism exists only in evil people, and, you know, that's not necessarily the truth. You know, we have, you know, a lot of these public policies, you know, again, urban renewal and interstate and public planning, you know, misguided policies. And, you know, the last quote is, 
And right then I knew that I was tired of good people, that I had had all the good people I could take. And there are some good people out there, and some of them have good intentions. However, you know, it does not necessarily always turn out that way. And so that's why, you know, I want to talk a little bit about urban um, rebellion so you all can know, you know, what was going on out there. And basically it's estimated that more than a half million, you know, African Americans participated in this in some form or another. Um, And this happened cities across the country, you know, Chicago, Philadelphia, Houston, you know, Tampa, Detroit, um, different places in Alabama, California, and, you know, it's just there were outbreaks all over the country. And what it did was it forced this country to transform some of the politics. You know, uh, they had to go back in and take a look at what was happening, you know, in the cities with the urban crisis. They had to go back and look at housing, brutality, police brutality, um, the school system, unemployment, you know, and, you know, um, President Lyndon Johnson termed it, quote, the nation's most urgent task, end quote. And this was primarily in the 60s and part of the 70s, but, you know, we're talking primarily what happened in the 60s. And, you know, the housing, you know, public policy, public money, public spending on housing went from $600 million at the beginning of the, de- of the decade to more than $3 billion by the end of the decade, you know, and that's when they created HUD, you know, the housing and urban development. Now, I know some of you all are out there saying, why is she talking about this? It's important that we understand this so that we can put it in context because we're going to hit on a lot of different subjects today, and you need to understand so when I talk about certain things, it will make sense to you. And some people don't know this information, so it's important that, you know, we put that out there and share it so that, um, you know, it's in context. You know, we can't assume that everybody knows this information because some of the information I didn't know, so... I'm just sharing it with everybody, but um, yeah, you know, these uprisings took place all over the country. I didn't hear a lot about urban rebellions um, in the sense that we're going to talk about it today. You know, uh, you know, they were the administration, you know, the executive branch of the country here. They were basically putting out imagery of rats attacking children when, you know, when they were trying to encourage and motivate Congress to pass the urban agenda, you know, which included a rat control bill. So, you know, it's it's just, ooh, you know, it was talking about the riot in Newark, New Jersey, and this happened in the summer of 1967. And basically... You know, it was, you know, one of the more aggressive situations that they had during that time. And basically they were saying people will not live like animals, nor should they live in some of the filthy, rotten housing that make up urban ghettos. Okay, now this came from, you know, Humphrey in Detroit. And it's just interesting. Um, it says you have to make a choice whether you want all your low-rent housing to be federally owned, whether you want subsidies so that the poor can own their own homes, or whether you want violence in America. 
And, you know, the information that I'm talking about now, I'll post all of this a little bit later, but, you know, the New York Times said the riots, rather than developing a clamor for great social progress to wipe out poverty to a large extent, have had the reverse effect and have increased the crisis for use of police force and criminal law. So there was a backlash, you know, a white backlash to what happened there. And... This is why we bring programs and, you know, information like this to you so that you can understand, you know, we're kind of looking at this from two different lenses. You know, black people see this one way and white people kind of see it another way. And when I say that, I don't mean all, okay, because, you know, we have some white allies out there that understand and that, you know, definitely are out there, you know, heralding, um, you know, some of the information that we're putting out there, and they see the injustices that are happening. You know, a headline from the Washington Post basically summarized it and said, races agree on ghetto abolition and the need for a WPA, which was the Federal Works Project Administration-style program. And basically it said 69% of Americans supported federal efforts to create a jobs program. 65% believed in tearing down ghettos. Another 60% supported a federal program to eliminate rats. And 57% supported summer camp programs for black youth. And what I find interesting, just tying it in with today's politics, um, we have people out here complaining about, you know, the unemployment, which is bad, and they have every right to complain about this. And they're, you know, pointing the finger at the Obama administration about creating jobs because most Americans vote with their pocketbook. We know this, you know, and so does, you know, the politicians and all of these political action committees. They they know this and they understand that. However, you know, what's being lost in the mix and the fray is the Obama administration did create a job programs bill is being held up in Congress. So that's part of the story that's not being told, that it's being held up in Congress, that, you know, they're trying to push that. But there's something going on with this administration in which they're not able to, you know, convey their message very clearly. I'm not sure what's going on with that, but, you know, they need some better strategists out here and, you know, to get that information across. But, you know, again, um, you know, we're going to go ahead and put this in context. So we talked a little bit about HUD when HUD was created, but we need to talk a little bit about the Federal Housing Administration, also known as the FHA. Now, this was created in 1934, and this was created because of the massive level of foreclosures during the Great Depression. And what this agency did was it insured loans made by banks for home buying with a goal to enable more citizens to become homeowners, right? So what happened with this is that the FHA, basically, they contributed greatly to the decay of the inner city neighborhoods, okay? And that process was called redlining, okay? So I want you to... That's the word that you need to write down, redlining. And I want you to do some research on that to get a better understanding of what that is. And what redlining is, basically, um, the Federal Housing Administration, they selectively administered the mortgage programs by formalizing a process that excluded certain urban neighborhoods by using empirical data that suggested a likely loss of investment in these areas. 
So basically, virtually almost all black neighborhoods and people that lived in those neighborhoods were denied mortgages regardless of their financial status. So it didn't matter how much money you made, how much of a down payment or a deposit that you had. You know, you were going to be denied because you fit a certain criteria. And what's interesting about that, just kind of tying it into today, is a lot of the wealth in communities of color that was acquired you know, during that time frame and subsequent to that, a lot of that was lost with this last mortgage bubble burst. And a lot of wealth has been totally wiped out, yet nobody went to jail for that. And I find that, you know, disheartening because people worked hard for that and to have it totally wiped out. And, you know, I've heard the excuses where they should have read the contract. They should have, you know, you know, retained an attorney and they shouldn't have signed on a dotted line. But at the end of the day, you know, it was just snatched and taken away from them. But anyway, going back, you know, you had, you know, urban renewal, you had the highway policies, and, you know, these this played a part. You know, they were factors, major factors in concentrating poverty and isolating, you know, minority communities in the cities, in the inner cities. And the Housing Act of 1949, it basically, it destroyed neighborhoods, you know, uh, upwardly bound neighborhoods, you know, viable neighborhoods. The residents were strung all over the place. They were displaced, and they failed to rehouse them. They failed to, you know, place them where they could afford the rents. They could afford, you know, to purchase a home. You know, it just destroyed neighborhoods, destroyed dreams, if you will. You know, the Highway Act of 1956, you know, created the interstate highway system. You know, I-55, you know, I-285, you know, 75, all of those, that is when this program was created. And, you know, it encouraged, you know, people to move out to the suburbs and, you know, uh, encouraged people to use their GI bills to, um, by homes in, a, you know, suburban areas. And some of this information you'll hear repeated next week when I talk about affirmative action and the onset and the building of the middle class and what it is. So you're going to hear a lot of this again next week. But, again, all of these shows are tied together, part one, two, and three. And what this did was, you know, it created barriers, you know, between sections of cities. Now, for those of you that, you know, live in certain areas, like when I lived in Atlanta, there's this highway called the 285, I-285. And when you drive the 285, which is nothing but a big circle, you'll see little partitions on the side of the highway. And, you know, I used to wonder why that was there. And then I did some research. Those partitions, and this is almost in every city. I see it in Chicago. I've seen it in New York. You know, I've seen it in different places. Those partitions are to hide the poor people so that the people on the highway won't have to see the urban decay, won't have to see the poor people. They won't have to see the projects. That's, that's what that is. You know, I just, you know, it's just, I don't know. I don't know. It's just important that you all understand and know what's happening here. But that's what those partitions are for. 
and, you know, again, artificial barriers. Um, and it walled off, you know, a lot of these neighborhoods. And not only did it wall it off from, you know, the interstate, but it also walled them off from business districts. And, you know, and it, it forced a lot of poor people from their homes because they had to find property to build the interstate. So in many cases, most cases, um, the property and the land that was designated were in poor areas, and they took it by eminent domain. So people really didn't have a choice but to sell. And in many cases, it wasn't even at market value. So, you know, whatever, you know, equity they may have had in their homes, a lot of that was wiped out. So it's important that you understand that. Um, And I'll give you a quote here. And it said, massive amounts of urban housing were destroyed in the process of building the urban section of the interstate system. By the 1960s, federal highway construction was demolishing 37,000 urban housing units each year. Urban renewal and redevelopment programs were destroying an equal number of mostly low-income housing units annually. And, you know, there are a lot of racial implications, and you need to go back and read this. You know, look up public housing programs in race and to get a better understanding, you know, um, as to what was going on here. You know, basically, public housing was created, and it was meant to house, quote-unquote, ghetto residents that had their homes destroyed, you know, by previous urban renewal projects. You know, a lot of people don't realize that. And, you know, uh, it lowered the income ceiling that was, you know, imposed by the FHA, you know, and basically it was geared toward the economically disadvantaged. However, as time went on, you know, it changed because, for the most part, you had families moving into these um, housing projects, if you will, and they were mainly in the cities. And the interesting thing is, is that that property actually was quite valuable because a lot of the whites and, you know, uh, well-to-do blacks, if you will, but mainly whites moved out to the suburbs thinking it was some type of utopia and left the blacks and the poor people in the inner city. And then after they got tired of driving to work, you know, an hour to work, an hour home because of the gridlock on the, on the interstate, you know, many wanted to move back into the city. You know, gentrification, modernization, you know, again, re- urban renewal. And what they did was, in many cases, they started issuing, you know, Section 8 certificates and vouchers and encouraged people to move out to the suburbs, and they were able to come back into the city and buy this property almost dirt cheap because in in some cases people weren't able to keep up with the repairs and some cases property taxes. I posted a couple of stories about, you know, people who had homes that had been paid off 10, 20 years but lost them because they couldn't afford the property taxes. And it's more to this than that. Um, we'll talk about, maybe we'll talk about a little bit public transportation today, and you'll get an understanding as to how some of this worked hand in hand. But, um, you know, it's just, it's a lot that's been covered up. It's a lot that people do not know and understand. 
and we just want you to go out and do some research. And we're talking about this because, you know, you have people pointing the finger and mocking and ridiculing people that live in the inner city, and because of the, you know, the economic situation that many of them happen to be in, but it's more complex than people realize. You know, many, most of these people are not living in squalor in these conditions because they want to. It's not because they want to. And it's more complicated, and this is why we talk about public policy and why we explain to you why you need to do the research and understand. You know, poverty, you know, uh, you know, dilapidated homes, you know, uh, trash, all of that, that's not black culture. No, they're trying to paint that picture, you know, that is black culture, and it's not. These people were thrown and forced into these situations, so, you know, again, do some research, do some research. And, you know, it's, it's just interesting because when Harry Truman signed the Housing Act in 1949, basically it gave federal, state, and local governments, you know, power, power they had never had before to shape residential life. And, you know, again, we talked about urban renewal and, you know, it destroyed about 2,000 communities in the 1950s and 60s and forced more than 300,000 families from their homes. That's a lot of people. And then people want to understand why many of these families broke up and, you know, some of the dysfunction and lost dreams and dashed hopes. Come on. Come on. We need to go back. We need to study a little bit more. We need to get a better understanding of what happened. You know, go and do some studying about urban renewal and racism. You know, um, Manhattan Town in New York, this was established in 1951, and it was one of the first projects authorized under urban renewal. And basically it was a model for hundreds of urban renewal projects you know, for the next 60 years of eminent domain. You know, we talked about that, you know, a little bit earlier. You know, it, it was abuse. Eminent domain was abuse. And, you know, with this project, you know, it destroyed six blocks on New York City's Upper West Side, including an African-American community that dated to the turn of the century. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. We're going to talk about black towns that had been destroyed. But I'm going to take it all the way back, even before, you know, um, this Manhattan Town project, because this is not the first time this has happened, and it won't be the last time, you know. And like I said last week, I need for you all to understand, history repeats itself. This is nothing new. This is the same game, just different faces, different players. But we still get caught up in a crossfire. And we're giving you this information so that you'll know how to go out and, again, critique it, challenge it. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, it's time to put the marching boots on. We need to get out of here and protest some of this that's happening to us. It's happening all over the country. But anyway... Basically, they'll, you know, um, use eminent domain to basically take the land from the people in the area that has been designated for urban renewal, and then they sell the land for, you know, almost next to nothing to, you know, corporations or people that are well-connected, connected to your politicians. And that's why, you know, we stress that all politics is local. People focus on the presidential campaign, which is very important, 
but you need to focus more on your local politics. What happens with your local politician affects you more than what a lot of what the president is doing, even though it's, you know, that affects you as well. But you have to understand how a lot of this is pushed down. You know, it may be a federal bill or a federal policy, but in many cases they leave it up to the state and local politicians to enforce and administer these policies. And so this is why it's important for you to get out there, get registered to vote, understand what's happening, you know, around you. So, you know, with this particular community, from my understanding, it was a very close-knit community, and it's just, you know, interesting, you know, how all of that, you know, went together. But I'm going to post a video about that. It's only a six-minute video, but I'll post that a little bit later. But I want to get into some of the lost black towns, you know. And, you know, this information I pulled from The Root. And, you know, you can go out there and find it yourself. Of course, I'll post it a little bit later for you guys. But the first town, you know, is called Fort Most, Florida. And it's called the First Emancipation Proclamation, if you will. And apparently this town was founded in 1738. And I guess it's just north of St. Augustine. And basically it's the first free black settlement and I didn't know that. That was something, you know, that um, was new to me. I had absolutely no idea. But basically, the king of Spain, you know, issued an edict that basically any male slave of the male col- of the British colonies who escaped to the Spanish colony of Florida would be set free as long as they declared their allegiance to Spain and the Catholic Church. And basically the settlement was abandoned when the British took possession of Florida in 1763. But, you know, that town is gone. Um, Of course, we talked about Rosewood, Florida. We talked about that last week. That's another one. Uh, Seneca Village, New York. Now, this is interesting with Seneca Village. Uh, There was an article. I'm looking for the article. Here it is. And it's talking about this village... Um, in New York, the one we're talking about now, and it took basically more than a decade for historians and anthropologists to piece together what happened. But to make it short, this particular piece of land was destroyed so that they could build Central Park. And this was a piece of land that, um, you know, a lot of freed slaves lived on. You know, Seneca Village, New York, and, you know, there's a lot of prominent black property owners that lived in that area. Um, basically, it was about 264 residents, and this was between 1825 and 1857. They had three churches, of course. They had a school and several cemeteries. And all of this was raised, you know, and the history was erased with the development of Central Park. So I'm going to, like I said, uh, post this a little bit later, but I'll also post the other article. Um, another one is Five Point Districts, New York. And I'm not going to really go into it, but today we call that particular area Wall Street. So this was another, you know, well-to-do um, black community, and it was one of the first free black settlements, you know, and this was in Manhattan. And it's now known as Wall Street, you know, and you all you need to know this history. Another one is Weeksville, New York. 
you know, and it was supposed to be a refuge, you know, for Southerners and, you know, Northerners. And, you know, it was the second largest community for free blacks prior to the Civil War. And it's just interesting. Um, Just go back and read this. You know, Greenwood, Oklahoma, we talked about that last week, which was Black Wall Street. Um, You had Freedman's Village, Virginia, you know, I'm going to post this. You all can look at this yourself, but Allensworth, California. Can't forget about California, and I'm more than likely going to go visit that area and see what type of plaque they had then, you know, have out there now if they have anything. Um, you had Freedman's Town, Texas, and it was known as Houston's Little Harlem. You know, it's just unreal. You had Davis Bend, Mississippi. And this story is, you know, quite interesting. Um, You also, you know, just want to go out and look at it, but it's, you know, another town called Mound Bayou. And I have friends and relatives that live in that area, but they have a lot of tobacco farms down there in Mound Bayou, Mississippi. Um, It's a well-to-do black town. But Davis Bend, Mississippi is another one that you want to look at. Um, Now, you know, I'm always destroying these names, but... Muchachanak, Iowa, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are, you know, saying there are black people in Iowa. Yeah, apparently there were from 1875 to 1900 in this particular city, um, you know, it was one of the largest coal mining firms um, in that area, and they used to recruit, you know, black labor, and it's just interesting, you know, that was destroyed as well. Another one is Buxton, Iowa. Like I said, I am really surprised that, you know, there were a lot of black towns in Iowa. But, you know, I'll post this. And this particular city, Buxton, Iowa, was considered a black man's town because there are a lot of, you know, blacks there, African Americans. Um, and they held, held key roles, like two justices of the peace and two deputy sheriffs. So, it's just interesting, you know, New Philadelphia, Illinois, which is here in Illinois. Um, you have Pine Oak or Pin Oak Colony, Illinois, you know, another one. And the last one is Black Dumb, New Mexico, and it was called the Black Ghost Town. But anyway, I'll post that link for you guys to see, you know, a little bit later. And I see we have Raina on the line with us here. Hey, Raina. I forgot I, I forgot I had pressed the one. That's <laughs> 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 right. Um, you know, that, um, well, I was kind of, oh, forgive me. But just, <laughs> yeah, you were kind of on a roll. Yeah. yeah. So I am, um, I'm not mad at you. But, um, no, I just, um, you know, I forget my, my comment that I was going to make initially, but, you know, definitely enjoying your presentation here. And, um, you know, Kim is right. I mean, you know, all of this, you know, you have to pay attention to history. I mean, all of these things have happened and, you know, before. I mean, um, you know, some of you may or may not know about this, but, you know, Trayvon Martin, you know, was killed in Sanford, Florida. Well, Sanford, Florida um, is Sanford, Florida because it annexed other towns into the city of Sanford. And one of those towns was actually the first incorporated um, city um, by black people called Goldsboro. Okay. And Goldsboro was annexed into uh, Sanford, and they were, uh, you know, 
like I said, the very first one, it didn't, um, somewhat similar to Eatonville, if any of you are familiar, Eatonville is where um, Zora Neale Hurston was from. And uh, Eatonville is still around, but it's um, it's still it's very poor and it's struggling. Um, but um, you know, Eatonville was not um, absorbed, but Goldsboro was, and and that was a, a, a plan of its mayor um, to incorporate the city. And you see, still today, um, black people, particularly those that are situated where Goldsboro used to be, are in a an economically depressed condition for the most part. So, you know, just, um, you know, just keep an eye on these things, you know. So, that's all exactly. I can say. Exactly. We have another call. Let me go ahead and 111. Are you there? May we ask who's calling? 111? Did we ask who's calling? Oh, it came up a different. Is this Deborah? Huh? Did we ask who's calling? Hello? Okay, we'll place you back. I mean, I heard them, but I don't know if they were just soft talking or if there was something wrong with their phone. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. I'll put them back on hold. They want to talk. They can press one to unraise their hand and press one to raise it again. But, um, yeah, so it's important that we know and understand, you know, what's happening out here. Um, you know, and, again, how many of you knew that Central Park and Wall Street itself was built on black towns, you know, in which they use eminent domain to basically take the property? and build, you know, what they want. And basically they gave the property away, you know, just, you know, token amounts to people that were politically connected. And, you know, that's unfortunate. And But the ones, there are some people out here that do know. And, you know, I applaud you, but you need to share that information with others. Definitely share that information with others. So, yeah, I'm going to post that article um, about the black towns as well as the other article about Central Park and about, you know, the African-American village that was displaced. It's important for you all to know about this because you just need to know. You need to know the history. You need to understand what's happened and what's happening because it hasn't stopped, you know. So, and another thing I want to talk about briefly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I want you all to go and do some research on sundown towns so you'll understand, you know, what that is. We had a few of them um, here in Illinois. As a matter of fact, the mayor is from one part. It's called Bridgeport, Illinois. And if you were caught over there when the sun went down, you were going to get beat. And, you know, there are a lot of different – yeah, Exactly. And it happens. And so, you know, I'm going to post an article about that, but it says here between 18... There's still some places that are like that. Exactly. You know, hell, they didn't want Oprah to come to Forsyth, Georgia. You know, you know, and it was just, it's unreal. But, you know, between 1890 and 1960, thousands of towns across the U.S. drove out their black populations or took steps to forbid blacks from living in them creating sundown town. And there were some places, you know, like, don't let the sun set on you here in nigger Mississippi. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just, who we? 
you know, you need to understand what was happening. Um, in some of these towns, they kept out Chinese people. Um, you know, a few wouldn't allow indigenous people or, or Mexican-Americans to come in there. So, you know, they even have sundown suburbs. So it's not just towns, it's suburbs and some cities that, you know, even to this day, eh, you don't really want to go over there. You know, it's not just us. They were keeping Jews out of some of these cities as well. So I'll post a little bit about that. But basically, you know, um, sundown towns, basically they're all white by design. You see what's happening up there in that North Dakota, what they're trying to do. But they're all white towns by design. So basically, you know, do some research. Do some research. I don't want to, you know, take the surprise away from you. But, yeah, yeah, sundown towns, you know, you will be surprised at what you will learn. And then also, so now moving on a little bit more into the subject for today, you know, racial steering. For those of you who aren't aware, um, that was one of the real estate practices. You know, when I was talking about redlining earlier, that's basically what this is. And what they do is they steer blacks into areas of town where they would feel more comfortable, or at least the realtor decided that they would you know, feel more comfortable. And they were basically advised the realtors to keep blacks away from certain neighborhoods. And basically, um, it's just it's, it's interesting when you go back and you read the history as to how, you know, racial segregation came about. This is part of it, you know, with the urban planning, with the racial steering, you know, urban renewal. All of this is tied together. All of this is tied together. Um, we just want you to know. And the, and don't understand. forget about the White Citizens Council. Exactly. Exactly, exactly, you know, and that's why we're putting this out here so that you all can kind of understand and see what's happening. You know, perception is not necessarily reality. I say that often, but I need for you to get that. You know, a lot of people perceive these cities as one way and and basically try to say that these people want to live that way. That's not necessarily true. That is not necessarily true. It's not true. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's not true. And this is why we bring this information. It's, it's just as important for you all to understand, you know, what's happening here. Um, and there is a tie between the crime rate and racial segregation. And I posted a link on my wall um, talking about food deserts and how you have poor white neighborhoods and poor black neighborhoods, and the poor white neighborhoods still had more grocery stores than the poor black neighborhoods. Because I've had people try to say, well, it's about class, not about race. This study proves that it's a combination of both class and race, but mainly it's about race. And that's why we post this information. I don't just post it so that you can go and look and go, ooh, I want you to study it and get a better understanding and get some compassion for people. But, you know, do some research on crime rates and racial segregation, and you'll understand a little bit more about, um, you know, what we're talking about here. We may do a show on that. You know, I have to think about it. But, you know, going back to the um, birth of the interstate highway system, you know, we talked about that and about, you know, Dwight Eisenhower and how all of this came about. And he was in a war, 
And basically, when he went over, um, you know, and was fighting in a war, he saw how well the streets were and the highway system was. And that's when he decided he wanted to come back when he came back to America that he wanted to implement um, a lot of what he had seen, you know, during during the war. What the hell happened to my life? But, yeah, and so that's, you know, what happened there. And he came here and he was elected president, and this is how this came about, you know, 41,000 miles of interstate systems. You know, they're all networked together. And... You know, that Federal Highway, Federal Aid Highway Act, it passed in June 1956, and it allocated $26 billion to pay for this. So, you know, it's, it's just interesting when you go back and you read this and you understand where it came from and how it came about and what was the motivation behind some of this. Now, what we need to realize and what we need to understand is that there are corporations behind this because, of course, when you have highways, you drive on them. And a lot of these, you know, car manufacturers, of course, they lobby to have these, you know, highways built because they were able to sell more cars. You know, the gas companies, of course, they lobbied for this because people would have to buy gas. You know, it is not by coincidence. It's not by coincidence. So, you know, automobile interests, you know, car companies, tire manufacturers, gas station owners, you know, the developers for the suburbs, you know, uh, all of this, all of this, you know, it's about infrastructure. And, you know, it's just please, please, please go and read this and understand, you know, how this came about. But, yeah, Eisenhower left Germany. When he came back to, you know, um, America and he was elected president, that's when he determined, you know, decided that he wanted to build the highways. So we can thank Germany and the Autobahn for uh, motivating him in that respect. But, you know, I want to give you, you know, an example of how it affected, you know, one particular community of color. Now, many of you may not be familiar with this particular area, but, I'm sure some of you will, and I want you to go and do some research on Fillmore, F-I-L-L-M-O-R-E, which was um, a neighborhood, an area in San Francisco. Now, for those of you that, you know, keep up with the news, living in San Francisco is ridiculously expensive. And it gets more and more expensive every day, and a lot of people in the communities of color and poor communities are being pushed out. Um, I believe I posted a story, or I meant to post a story, about this older Asian couple that had been living in their home for, you know, well over 30 years, and they were disabled, and they have a disabled child, and they're being forced out of their home. And they took it to court, and they won the first time, but the second time, the judge said, no, you have to go. And the community rallied behind them and protested, but they still had to leave. Now, in Fillmore, PBS did a whole series about Fillmore. So if you can find it, let me know because I've been looking around for it, but I may just end up buying it. But, you know, about Fillmore, you know, in San Francisco. And what I find interesting is James Baldwin. 
spoke a little bit about it. And I'll just read, you know, an excerpt here, and this is from Citizen King. And it says here, a boy last week, he was 16 in San Francisco, told me on television, thank God we got him to talk. Maybe somebody thought to listen. He said, I've got no country, I've got no flag. Now, he's only 16 years old, and I couldn't say you do. I don't have any evidence to prove that he does. They were tearing down his house because San Francisco is engaging, as most northern cities now are engaged in something called urban renewal, which means moving the Negroes out. It means Negro removal. That is what it means. The federal government is an accomplice to this fact. Now, we are talking about human beings. There's not such a thing as a monolithic wall or some abstraction called the Negro problem. These are Negro boys and girls who at 16 and 17 don't believe the country means anything that it says and don't feel that they have any place here on the basis of the performance of the entire country. And the guy interrupted him, and he said, am I exaggerating? And the the interviewer, Clark, said, no, I certainly cannot say that you are exaggerating, but there is this picture of a group of young Negro college students in the South coming from colleges where the whole system seems to conspire to keep them from having courage, integrity, clarity, and the willingness to take risks, which they have been taking for these last three or four years. Could you react to the student nonviolent movement, which has made such an impact on America, which has affected both Negroes and whites and seems to have jolted them out of the lethargy of tokenism and moderation? How do you account for this? And James Baldwin responded and said, well, of course, one of the things I think that happened, Ken, really is that in the first place, the Negro has never been as docile as white Americans wanted to believe. That was a myth. We were not singing and dancing down on the levee. We were trying to keep alive. We were trying to survive. It was a very brutal system. The Negro has never been happy in this place. What those kids, first of all, proved, first of all, they proved that. They come from a long line of fighters, and what they also prove, I want to get to your point really, is not that the Negro has changed, but that the country has arrived at a place where he can no longer contain the revolt. He can no longer, as he could do once. So, I mean, that's all I'm going to read from that, but I'll post that a little bit later because that was a very intriguing interview there, and I just want you all to kind of get a better understanding, but you know, basically. I was going to say that not much has changed. I mean, especially if you think about, you know, um, survivors of Katrina and even survivors of Sandy. I mean, a lot of times people show people who survived the Hurricane Sandy as, you know, white business owners. And, of course, certainly a lot of white business owners were harmed by um, Hurricane Sandy. But, um, you know, Red Hook, New York, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and a lot of other communities of color, you know, all along the East Coast were were devastated, you know, and and are, and people are still displaced. People are still living in hotels and, you know, temporary yeah. housing. Some people are homeless um, because of what has happened, and and they're called they're calling, um, they've called you know the people in New Orleans, Katrina survivors, refugees. But you right. don't really hear so much of that being said about a lot of these other disasters. So you have to, it makes you wonder, you know, because that, that very same thing that that child said in that interview um, could, be, could be said easily by someone who survived Katrina today, you know. Exactly. 
Exactly, exactly, very much so. And it's just it's important that we understand and we know what's happening out here. And I think Deborah is back. That's you, Deborah. Press one so I can go ahead and put you on here. There you go. All right, let me pull Deborah into the conversation. Now your phone number looks normal. Hey, Deborah. It, it, that's weird. You know, and I didn't, I think maybe that happened the other week, you know. That's weird. Oh, okay, yeah. I don't want you to think we're ignoring you. Sometimes I'm scared to pick up those one one ones and six 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 six. Yeah, I don't know where from, man. I need to do that all the time. I because I don't that didn't happen before, but I just thought, you know. Right. I just it's okay. okay. It's okay. It's okay. But yeah, so no, it's just it's interesting. But yeah, I want you guys to go up and look up the Fillmore. Look up because I mean that is just one of the you know prime examples of what happens. And basically, with the Fillmore, you know that neighborhood there is is, is talking about a whole social history because the Fillmore area was considered you know the Harlem of the West. You know, so go look that up. You know, it was talking about, you know, uh, in the streets of Fillmore can be found the stories of the Japanese in San Francisco from internment to integration, you know, the jazz heyday created by the arrival of thousands of black workers during World War II, um, the dramatic battle to save the neighborhood from the bulldozers of urban renewal. And, you know, even today, you know, basically, you know, people are being priced out of their homes. So, you know, um, they're being forced to evacuate. So it's important that, you know, we go back and we do some research um, about, you know, uh, the population in those areas and how urban renewal was basically used as an excuse to, quote, unquote, clear the slums and take the city of San Francisco into a new era of prosperity. And they say that about all of these cities. You know, when they tore down the projects here in Chicago, you know, where you all saw good times and all of that, when they tore the projects down, like I said, they gave many of those people, you know, Section 8 vouchers and moved them out to the suburbs. And then all of a sudden bus services started getting cut, you know, public transportation. And also I want you all to look into that as well, public transportation and herbal renewal, because all of this ties hand in hand. It all ties hand in hand. I don't want you to be fooled. I want you to understand, Absolutely. you know, yeah. you know how it all. No, um, they have a. Oh, go ahead. I'm go sorry. Ahead. I was going to no, 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 give an example. Ahead. I was going to say. I was going to say that um, in my hometown, you know, Baltimore, they have. Um, there's a mall now that is a lot less popular than it used to be. And it, the primary reason that people are saying it's unpopular is because it's on the subway line. It's it's one of the very few, that, especially the very few that's that far out from the heart of the city that mm-hmm. um, you can actually get to by subway. And um, a, lot of, a lot of people took advantage of this. I mean, you know, it, I took advantage of it several times because it's very accessible from where my grandmother lives, you know, and you don't have to worry about finding a parking space once you get there, you know. But um, it's um, it's because so many black kids are out there, they're saying folks don't want to shop out there anymore. And so there's a new proposal to add another line that would, you know, expand the range of um, public transportation options in the city, but people are protesting it because they don't want 
that bad element, quote unquote, you know, to be brought okay. into their communities. But the thing yep. about it is, is that these communities don't have access to. These, I mean, th- what would happen is that these people would have access to jobs that they wouldn't have in their in their immediate areas because nobody's doing anything about bringing living wage jobs to these poor communities. No one's doing that. So what are they supposed to do? They gotta hop right. on the subway. They gotta take the bus. They gotta get there some way. You know exactly. Exactly. So that's why I want people to look that up about public transportation, urban renewal, um, all of this is tied together. We're not just telling you this because we don't have anything else to talk about. All of this is tied together. And not only will it give you compassion for other people, it will answer some questions. Some of you may have been in this predicament or may be in this predicament. I live Mm -hmm. in a city, and, you know, as I educated myself more, learned some things in school, learned some things that weren't in the textbook, um, it, it helped me to understand some of the things that happened when I grew up, why, you know, my mom would say we couldn't go certain places. And, you know, just it, it explained so much. You know, I didn't understand it as a child, and she didn't know how to explain it to me as a child. You know, how, how are you going to explain to yeah, I was going to say, it's it's de facto segregation. Right. You know what I mean? We don't have, have state-imposed segregation anymore. We have de facto segregation. And, I mean, sometimes de facto segregation is not, is not necessarily a bad thing. You know what I mean? Some communities are just going to congregate, you know, because they have an interest in congregating. Like, I don't think if, you know, tomorrow we said, okay, um, you know, all of we're going to dismantle every discriminatory system in place. That you're going to, you know, lose Koreatown or Chinatown or, you know, Little Havana. You know, <laughs> you're not going to lose those things. Sometimes people come together because they have a cultural, you know, similarity. You know, right. but right. there's other forms of de facto segregation that are that are in place that are not necessarily legislated to be discriminatory but are clearly discriminatory when you look at demographics and economic information and what have you. Yeah. So Yeah. And and how about yeah. uh the way they redistrict certain areas? You know, here Speak up baby. Um, Can't hear you. Oh, I'm sorry. Here, you know, they did some redistricting. In other words, they wanted more whites in a certain area for voting. So they changed the, like, like okay, I, I was born in Ch- Chesapeake County, Virginia. What they did, the part that I was born in is now Richmond, Virginia. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, They ma'am. even did that, you know, redistrict, redistrict. I think they did it up in Chicago. Right. I think I heard Chicago. But they be doing stuff like that for different for mostly because of 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 you know, they want blacks in a certain area, you know. Yeah, that's happening all across the country with, you know, the yeah. redistricting, um, the gerrymandering and all of that. All of that is done for a reason. That's how a lot of those tea partiers were elected. 
because they were able to go and, you know, um, basically redistrict, reline these areas so it was guaranteed that they would win because they would have more, you know, Caucasian, more conservative um, constituents that will vote for them and put the blacks in it. So it's just, you know, again, you're right. You're right on the money there. You know, that's why we're telling people to go and to you know, you know, look this information up. And, you know, again, you know, when we talk about urban renewal, we're not talking about one single policy. You know, there are a lot of policies. And, yeah. you know, we want you to go and, and look this up because it's just it's, it's interesting because when they did the urban renewal, there were a lot of, you know, assumptions or a lot of things that they had planned. You know, they wanted to clear out the slums, if you will. They wanted to build office towers, and they – believed and it's been proven that the expressways would bring white middle-class people back into the downtown area, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I talked about that at the beginning of the show. But, you know, a lot of the white middle-class people got tired of being locked in gridlock for an hour to get to work and an hour to get home, whereas when there was no gridlock, it was only a 20-minute drive. You know, and some of them were afraid to catch public transportation because they would have to go through, you know, communities of color. And, of course, they were afraid, if you will. So what happened is, you know, with gentrification, they started moving back into the inner cities and buying the Can property stop- for cheap. Can we stop saying afraid and just say punkified? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these are, we're dealing with scared people, really. I'm serious. I mean, it's really sick how scared <laughs> when you think about the things that <laughs> they do. <laughs> well, you know, I'll give you one example that happened this year in Chicago. Okay, mm-hmm. so last spring, this past spring, we had some issues with, you know, some, they called it mob action. You know, they called it mobbing with, you know, a lot of young kids, you know, young, you know, children of color, teenagers of color. They would they were planning this stuff on Twitter and would meet at a certain place, you know, just certain this downtown. And they, you know, were causing havoc, as it was described by the media. And what they did in Chicago is they shut down the red line, red line train on, on the south side of Chicago which is primarily predominantly black. And they did it under the guise of, you know, rebuilding the tracks and, you know, um, upgrading everything, upgrading the stations. So many of those same children were not able to get downtown. Well, they could. They could have caught the bus, but they know most of them are not going to catch the bus. It's easier to catch the train. And that mm-hmm. cut down a little bit on that over the summer. But, you know, it's, it's interesting how all of this works out. Now, yeah. you know, one of the protests from them, you know, closing down that section of the red line was, you know, they gave people notice or people were acting like they didn't have the appropriate notice, which, I mean, depending on your mindset, you know, that's true. But the thing is, is that one of the things is when they were rebuilding that particular infrastructure, they didn't have any black contractors or anything, so it just turned into a really big political issue. But You know, it's it's a lot of that, you know, happening, but that's the reason, you know, some of the reasons why, um, you know, I just want people to go and look and find out what's happening with these resources and what happens with, you know, racialized poverty. You know, that's the key term right there, racialized poverty. There's a lot of undercover stuff going on. A lot of undercover stuff is 
is going. I call it undercover, and people just don't be paying attention. They really don't. Right, right, right. And it's just interesting how all that works out. And, you know, next week when I talk about affirmative action, that is going to be a really good show. You all want to tune in for that one as well. Oh, we're going to have some surprises. But anyway, um, (laughs) you know, I talked about Manhattan Town, New York, and I'm going to basically post the links for that a little bit later. As a matter of fact, I need to move this link over. And, again, um, it was a model for, you know, a lot of urban renewal projects. And, you know, it's just it's important that you guys go out and find out. But, I mean, Again, I was surprised, you know, and I found this out a few years ago, but I was surprised when I found out that Central Park and Wall Street were built on top of black towns, that they were basically, you know, forced out. And it's just, I don't know, it's disheartening. It really is. It's really disheartening and, you know, it's hurtful, you know, because those people pretty much lost everything. But, you know, um, as... You know, they formed, you know, these freeways and, you know, suburbia got a little bit more popular. Um, it, it basically kind of created the ghettos, if you will, in the cities or certain parts, the very poorest parts of the cities. And this is tied. This is tied to the formation of the freeways and, you know, urban planning. You know, um, the creation of the suburbs and the forced importance of automobiles. You understand? So it's all tied together. Mm-hmm. And during World War II, there were housing shortages. You got to go back and remember all of that as well. So all of this, you know, ties together, as well as job shortages, and especially when the troops came back from the war, which caused mm-hmm. even more, you know. Uh, job shortages and you know so it's important you know there were housing shortages there were job shortages um you just have to go out and research because this is so important for you all to understand and this is happening all over the country and then also you may want to look up white flight you know so basically what that means is when an area was you know pretty much almost all white and blacks started moving in, the whites would sell and move, you know, and they would move to other little areas, you know, especially suburbs. And when the people left, when, you know, the whites left, many of the businesses went with them, you know, which kind of ties into some of the food deserts, you know. And so with this here, when the businesses left the areas, this led to more unemployment, which led to more poverty, which leads to more crime, which is deemed as urban problems. You understand? These are called restrictive covenants. So research, research, Mm -hmm. because even if a person of color could afford a home in the suburbs, they were kept out by the restrictive covenants known as redlining and racial steering, which is something I talked about a little earlier. So we want you to go back and read. We want you to go back and read because this is one of the reasons why the urban areas, why the cities or quote-unquote ghettos, why they decline and why they decline so fast. 
go back, go out, and look. And a lot of the businesses were moving out to the suburbs because the land was cheaper and they were able to get the type of resources, human resources, that they wanted. You know, there's, there's many other things that go hand in hand with that, but, you know, just we want you to go out and find out what's happening. But, yeah, you know, it's just it's, it's, it's interesting. We had tied into redlining, racial steering, you know, restrictive covenants. Go out. Look it up. Look it up. You know, and when I was talking earlier, I used a term called blockbuster. B-L-O-C-K-B-U-S-T-I-N-G, blockbusting. Now, I'm going to define that for you because <laughs> I know some people are like, what did she say? What was that word? Yeah, blockbusting. And basically, you know, with the blockbusting there, this was a process that they used to persuade minorities to congregate in the same area. So when you see things like, well, why do all the black people live in this area? called blockbusting, mm-hmm. and it was designed that way. They were in, encouraged and persuaded. And when I say persuaded, I'm putting that in quotation marks. So the realtors would tell white people that a neighborhood was going to tip, quote, unquote, tip, or become racially mixed, and then the whites would sell their homes for cheap. Yeah. And then the real estate agents would sell those homes to black people, making a big profit. And so the same thing is happening now. You know, in the inner cities, the whites are moving back into the inner city. The blacks are selling these homes and property for cheap. And and it's just, it's a vicious circle. It's a vicious circle. It's a vicious circle, you know. And so it's just interesting, you know, because, you know, blacks and Latinos, um, the middle classes for the blacks and Latinos, you know, did merge. You know, and that's when the middle class started, you know, coming to be. But, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I want you guys, like I said, to go out and research this because it was um, it was designed. It was designed. And, you know, you have people, you know, trying to make it seem as though people are willfully living a certain way when that's not necessarily the truth. But, again, um, you know, with the urban renewal projects that have, you know, happened across this country, it's it's just interesting because, again, it destroyed a lot of families, destroyed Mm -hmm. a lot of neighborhoods. um, And, I mean, you still see the effects of that today. And while the interstates and help different, like the oil companies, the automobile manufacturers, and the suburbs, The it hurt the people in the city. Mm-hmm. The people that, you know, they claimed that it was supposed to help, it hurt them the most. It hurt mm-hmm. poor people the most. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have interstates, but what I'm saying is that we need to assess the problem as a whole. And... um you know, is the whole thing is just interesting. We want you to go back and see what's happening. But, yeah, you know, less than 10% of persons displaced by urban renewal and interstate construction had new single resident or family housing to go to afterwards, less than 10%. And what happened to those other 90% people? Mm-hmm. 
you know, and the cities were not building new housing. I mean, it was rare, you know, to take the place of what had been destroyed. So basically people were doubling up with relatives, moving into run-down, you know, housing projects, you know, um, renting crowded apartments, and seeing again, we talked about this a little bit. I hinted about this a little bit, but again, who owns most of the property? Who was renting out most of these apartments? White landowners, which kept them rich. Do your research. Do your research. Because, go ahead, honey. No, I would, well, I was just going to say that that's why it's so important for with the information that you're giving, because I don't think that people understand it, but if we come together and it's not like we can't have our own, okay? We need to start our own businesses. And I think the reason why a lot of people, because they do not know the little tricks of the trade that has been played on our community. You understand what I'm saying? And uh, I, I sometimes I look at them and say, well, we got some poor whites over here too. Well, yeah, I'm, you know, they've always did it to their own. You know, it's been classism and and racism that has been used. They've always used their own, you know, uh, even enslaved them. So that's no biggie. But what we need to do instead of putting our money into their stuff, it's time for us to do our own thing. I mean, if, just think about it. If we stop, if we, all of us just stop, okay, Christmas, okay, Thanksgiving coming up, right? Don't don't uh-huh. go and get no food, nobody. No black person going, man, these these companies and everything, these girls will have a fit. They're having a fit down here. Already it don't affect. Did the people with the food stamps, you know, they cut, I don't know what they did, did, it, did they do it to y'all? They cut the food stamps down here. Yeah, that was all across the country, and oh, yeah, they okay, did cut okay. the food stamps. And, and well, the thing it's affecting, is, it's affecting. Oh, yeah, it's affecting everyone, and you know mm-hmm. what, a lot of these, it's the last social safety net in this country, which is one of the reasons why they were fighting so hard against, you know, the Affordable Care Act, because that's mm-hmm. another social you know, safety net that's been put in place now to help people, even though a lot of people are going to fall through the cracks for that, which is why they should have had single-payer option, but I'm not going to go on a rant about that. But, yeah, no, that's the last social safety net that we have in this country, and it's hurting a lot of people. But, again, a lot of people have, you know, bought into um, the narrative that the majority of the people on welfare and receive food stamps are black, and that is the furthest thing from the truth. This is going yes, to help. I mean, I'm sorry. This is going to hurt. Um, you know, uh, economic economically disadvantaged whites more than blacks. You know, I mean, it's going to hurt everyone, but it's more economically disadvantaged whites. You know, um, getting food stamps than than blacks. And the thing is, is that with this last economic bubble that we just went through when it bust. There are a lot of middle class. Well, there's no such thing as a middle class anymore. I don't even know why I'm still using that terminology. But there are a lot of whites that were once considered middle class that are on food stamps. You understand? And, you know, it's, it's, it's a shame. But I tell people to go and research about that. But let me finish talking a little bit about this highway system so people can understand, you know, what's happening here. Because, I mean, I just want to go ahead and finish it up, and then we'll come back to that. But, um, you know, when they did this, you know, 
Um, basically, in 1965, a congressional committee acknowledged that the highway system was likely to displace a million people before it was finished. You know, and basically, it was championed as a way to clear out black and brown ghettos. And the American Road Builders Association, a lobby with obvious interest in the creation of tens of thousands of miles of interstate, praised the construction as a way to eliminate slum and deteriorated areas, thereby countering the threat posed by slum housing to the public health, safety, morals, and welfare of the nation. And in 1972, a federal official admitted that the interstate program was seen as a way to get rid of the local, the local nigger town. Mm-hmm. So, you know, go back and look at this because, you know, with, this, with the interstate program, it caused black and brown neighborhoods to basically decline rapidly, you know, and it cut them off more from the rest of the cities you know, the highway, so it caused their lives to become worse. And so, you know, again, go back and research this, understand it. You know, I'm going to put up some information about the highway revolts that broke out across the country, but in particular the Midwest, you know, people out protesting the highway. They're still protesting highways now. And I want you all to go, you know, you've heard the term road to nowhere. Mm-hmm. Road to nowhere. And basically where that came from is when people were, when when they were building the interstate systems and the people started going out and protesting, in some cities they stopped the highways. They just stopped abruptly. And that's why they're called roads to nowhere, roads to nowhere, because the citizens got out and protested. So, you know, sometimes you hear this terminology and you don't know where it came from. You know, we're trying to, you know, put some of it in perspective, just like, um, you know, when we did our show about unsung heroes, and, you know, in the in the black history, you know, you know, yeah, you go back and listen to that show as well. But, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, there are some people arguing, you know, about the constitutionality of urban poverty. And I'm reading and studying that to kind of get a better understanding where, you know, it comes from. And there are some people out here that feel that gentrification is equal to racism. So, you know, again, I'm encouraging you guys to go out and read and do some research and understand, get a better understanding as to what's happening and why it's happening. Oh, we have Travis with us. Hold on, Travis. I got you. Hey, Travis. Hey, how are you doing, Kim? Hi. Good. Hey everybody. I'm doing I'm doing pretty well, you know. I'm listening to you and what's what I what I think about what what you're saying is all of this is happening in many cities at many different levels. And a lot of times people don't find out about what's going on until their friends and family have already sold their houses away. Mhm. Exactly. Or exactly. the bus or subway system has been altered so that now you can't get to where you used to get to on the regular. Right. Exactly. You know, it's, it's little things like that. You don't see it like um, even here in Seattle, uh, things have changed uh, drastically over the last 20 years, and there was such a slow change that you don't notice it until it's right. already changed. Okay, so exactly. there's a... Um, there's a school 
uh, Franklin is the name of the school, and it's a school where, um, or here, give me example, Garfield's a school. Garfield's a school where uh, Bruce Lee, Quincy Jones, and Jimi Hendrix went. Okay. Oh, wow. And um, it used to be mostly black, like maybe 65% black, but now it's 65% Asian. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, the area where I live in is not as zip code 98118. And there was an article in the New York Times about how this zip code beat Queens as being the most diverse zip code in the country. Oh, okay? wow. And, yeah, I mean, seriously, really, really diverse. Like, if I go to, like, the um, the cell phone store, they'll have uh, four or five different languages behind the counter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. On the regular, all day long. Okay. And... That's not that's not a bad thing. It's it's a great thing, but what's right. been happening is, and what happened really in Seattle was probably different from other places. We got Microsoft here, we got Google, we got Amazon, and uh, basically those people got enough money that they drove the price of everything up. So yeah, even exactly. getting a house in in the hood is three, four, five hundred thousand dollars. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly what happened, and, you know, that's why we're bringing this information to people so they can understand what's happening around them and why it's happening, how quite a bit of this is happening by design, you know, and it's just interesting because, I mean, there have been people out there talking about this, and their voices have been silenced or mocked and ridiculed. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Yes, yes, they do. This is really happening, and this is why I say we need to put our boots back on. We need to get out here. We need to talk about it because, again, it it affects all of us. And, again, I talked about, you know, Occupy Wall Street last week. I'm going to bring them back into it today. You know, one of the reasons why, you know, Occupy Wall Street had a hard time attracting people of color is because we've been going through this for centuries, if you will, you know, for, you know, close to a couple of centuries here. And it started with, and we're still going through it, right, and it's starting to affect them now. Then they want us to do but where were you when we were out here protesting? You know, and yeah. the thing is is that that's not, you know, an excuse not to help them because I went out there for a little while until they started getting arrested. You get arrested, I'm gone. But, um, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, because they're going to arrest me first. Okay. <laughs> right, that's what I said. That's why I was holding the camera. I, 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 I walk okay. around with y'all, but I, I hold the camera, and when y'all get okay. clunked, I'll make sure to get good pictures, but I'm not trying to get clunked in the head because they're going to exactly. try to close okay. me first. <laughs> get him. He's big. You know. Right. right. And, and the thing is, is that, you know, the way that I see it is, you know, we got to put our marching boots back on. We have to get out here. We have to educate. Now, a lot of our parents and grandparents, you know, they tried to shield us, which I understand. Yeah. But some of that hurt us because look at some of these younger generations. They don't have a clue. They're angry, but they don't know why. Right. Yeah, and right. so mm-hmm. we have to address it. We have to educate them. Next week's show, again, is going to be Privilege Mutiny Part 3, Affirmative Action. You know what? That's going to be a three-hour show. I'm going to make that mm-hmm. like a whole 
So, yeah, next week is a three-hour show. The first two will be streaming live. The last hour, you're going to have to call in. But it's definitely going to be a three-hour show because i got a whole bunch of stuff we need to talk about with affirmative action and how the middle class is formed. And you will be surprised, okay? So you know, definitely Kim, gonna, uh-huh, uh-huh. you mentioned earlier there is no middle class. And you're absolutely right. I, was trying, I did it at the show, and I asked the crowd, uh, how much do you think a year is middle class? And people yelled out numbers like 30 and 40 and 50, and I'm like, wait a minute now. If it costs $20,000 to send your kid to school, then if you can't do that, you ain't in the middle. That's right. If you can't afford to send your kids to college, you are not in the middle. Okay? Right. And uh, if Oprah can buy a purse that's more than the money you made last year, you're not in the middle. (laughs) That's right. Right. That's right. Exactly. I mean, you're deep, exactly. deep, deep undercover. Like, you know, everybody's talking about last week about the brother uh, who bought, tried to buy the $300 belt. You oh, know? the young man at Barney. Uh, right. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, how much money would I really have to have before I bought a $300 belt? You know how much money I would have to have? I mean, the, the amount of money is so great that I, I, I couldn't even imagine it. <laughs> if, if, if somebody bought me a $300 belt, I would cuss them out. Yeah, take it back. Yeah, seriously. Take it back. Mm-hmm. Dude, don't you know that the, 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 the uh, food stamps got cut? You can help somebody with. Oh, I'm gonna use. Like I need a, a three dollar belt. It just it just blows my mind. So if you can go off yeah. there. Same thing with a three thousand, thirty thousand dollar purse. If you got a third, if you're getting a thirty thousand dollar purse, you cannot pretend to me for a second that you're good. I can't. I, I can't do that. In my mm-hmm. mind. It, it just doesn't work that way. It doesn't make no sense. I, it don't make. It makes no sense. Uh, how many kids so, so that cost a quarter a day could you get for that? Oh yeah, I want you to read an article that I posted, and this article was by Tressy. Um, you know, the wonderful um, black feminist. You know, wonderful woman, Dr. Tressy. But the name of the article is "Why Do Poor People Waste Money on Luxury Items." And I'll go back to my page and I'll tag both of you in it so you can read that. But, you know, cool. people have different reasons for doing, you know, different things. But, yeah, me personally, no, I'm not walking around in a $300, you know, belt. You know, it's not going to happen. You know, they can barely, you know, grab me and make me stop wearing my Adidas and my Pumas. You know what I mean? And I've had those for several years. I, have, I haven't been clothes shopping in life ever. But, I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, I mean, everybody – has their reasons for doing certain things. Me, I don't like to shop. I'm one of those few people that I hate going to the mall. Absolutely detest it. I but, do too. Um, yeah. <laughs> I like yeah, those. I, um, I like those. Uh, what, what those? Uh, oh, I used to go to them all the time. Where you people don't put stuff in. What is it? The Goodwill. Good. Yeah, Goodwill. But I always it's another one. But it's just, that's the same thing. Marshall Salvation what, Army. They don't know what they throw away. They really, really don't. A lot of stuff, people don't know. Man, I got a fur coat uh, one year, a fur, fur jacket, beautiful fur, real fur, for 50 bucks. All right now. All right now. So, I mean, you know, and that's And then you walk down the street. And somebody do some paint on your ass. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the boy would have been out there fighting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would have been a Kodak moment. 
Yeah. <laughs> I love those shops. I love those shops, man. Antiques. They throw away antiques, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, for me, I'm trying to go to a... For me, trying to go to a, a halfway uh, a store uh, or something. I'm six seven, so what? I gotta wait for a giant to die <laughs> to be able to find something to fit me. <laughs> wow, six seven. Yeah. Wow. Y'all got to be size fifteen. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. I did sign. I did sign a boot. I used to. I don't wear it now because I've lost a lot of weight. I used to wear a size twelve shoe. I found a mm-hmm. size. Well, boot. I said, wow. I mean, I, it was beautiful. They had no scars on it or nothing. Like they had never wore it. There you go. There you go. You know, there these you days, go. though, I went to, like, mm-hmm. a, a, a big and tall shop, and they had a men's over-the-ankle boot. It was $250, and it came pre-scuffed up. It was scuffed up already. It, was, it came pre-scuffed. You know how they have, like, the oh, whole wow. beat-up hat they try to sell people yeah. for, like, $70? And I'm like, well, what, right. what's next? What's next? Wow. Next they're going to have, you know, pre-street draws. <laughs> you know what like, I mean? Oh, oh, and oh, no. holes, holes in the jeans. Holes in the jeans. Yeah, holes in the jeans is, is all I of that. I understand that. But I can't explain. Yeah. Think about what it is, okay? What it is is it's wealthy guilt yeah. pretending not to be wealthy. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? It's wealthy guilt. Just mm-hmm. like poor people will buy some shit that's too expensive for them, rich people will wear what will dress down. Mm-hmm. Wow. This is interesting, you know, but I don't know. A lot of that is tied into that's why so we have to understand the psychology behind, you know, quite a bit of this. And, you know, that's why we're exposing it and talking about it on this show. And maybe we'll do a show, you know, about that particular subject, but um, man, man, oh man, oh man, last week's show tied into this week's show, which ties into next week's show, and then we're done with this series, but the show after that, show two weeks from now, is Black Churches Equals Black Problems, with a question mark, okay, and like I said, that question mark is there for a reason, but it's a lot going on, it's a lot going on, that's why we're putting information out there. Explanation mark. But, yeah, what's the mystery? What's the mystery there? Because if, 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 if the people in the community are giving 10% of, of their dough to, some, to, to one individual, how can there be a surprise that, they, that, they, that, they, that they're broke? Ain't no mystery there, a, right? I found a Facebook page. Oh, what is it called? No, you don't have to tie or something like that. And they found it mm-hmm. in the Bible, right? Which I, I, I already, I had been, of course, telling my sons that, but they didn't believe right. me. But it's called No Tithing or something like that, and it's a Facebook page. It is bad by a, a okay. black woman. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? I'll send you an article about that as well um, mm-hmm. because, you know, again, when it comes to the No Tithing thing, it, it ties into Levitical priesthood and, all of that fun stuff, but you know, I'll, I'll send you the article behind all of yeah. that because I've been. I, I put, was a, couple of, I put a couple of. Church. I put a couple oh, yeah. of uh, videos on my mm-hmm. page of it too. Oh, okay, cool. Hey Kim, um, yeah, nah, off topic, 
but, but real quick, uh, by the way, I just wanted y'all to know that The Preachers of L.A. is the best show on TV. Gotcha. By far. It's the best show on TV, okay? And the reason why it's the best show on TV is because I really believe that when people see these uh, tricksters mm-hmm. using their mm-hmm. tricks and you see it on TV like that, yeah. I really think right. that when you see your preacher do the same, try the same trick on you, mm-hmm. that it, it has a chance to snap you out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and what's really interesting about it is, okay, so one of the preachers started attacking the other preacher for having a big entourage that had to be yeah. uh, paid for yeah. in order for him to come to a small church. <laughs> but and so it was, it was cool. He was saying, "Well, I don't believe you should have to, you, that. You should get uh, that. You should have to get paid to, to, to preach the word." And I was like, mm. "He wasn't uh-huh. being really honest because he's one of these singing preachers. So he's uh-huh. a singing musician preacher. He's mm-hmm. selling his album yeah. after the show." So he's yeah. getting his money, but he's messing but with the wait. other guy for needing wait. money. You know what I mean? It, uh-huh. It's, yeah, yeah. You it's, were talking, you're talking about Dietrich Haddon, that's the singing one, and he yeah, was going yeah. off Clarence McClendon, and it's uh-huh. a whole yeah. bunch of backstory on both of those. But the thing mm-hmm. is, is that, yes, hopefully when people watch that show, they'll see the type of opulent lifestyle that these people are preaching, and hopefully they'll show them the real deal behind, you know, some of them because you would have to I've told people in the past before on this show and other shows, and I was like, you wouldn't believe how these people live when they leave this church. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. some of the things that they say about their members, how they really feel, and some of the stuff they they tell y'all, but I can't tell you. They hate you. They despise you. Exactly. Um, Exactly. on the show, they showed how, like, um, the preacher's wives, you know, got the big cars, too, and they mm-hmm. showed how, um, like, the, the preacher's wives got together, and they're all wearing those big hats, those big, expensive, you know, like, Kentucky Derby hats. Yeah, they, they had a yep. tea. They yep. had a tea. Yeah, a tea, yeah. Okay, they're doing she that kind of stuff. She had been but with the worst one. Jones for, for 15 which, yeah, years or Which time. one is he? Uh, uh, he's a, a Noel Jones. He's a preacher that was going with the uh, was. They were going together. They called themselves just good friends, and that's the one that they was. The women didn't know whether they was going to invite her or not because she had yeah. been going with him for like fifteen years. You know, yeah, right. so she wasn't considered he a wife. Yeah. yeah, right. People were hinting that he's gay anyway. So she yeah, told him people were hinting that he was gay anyway. Mm-hmm. I always thought so. Hey, hey, I'm just, hey, hey, I'm just calling it like I see him. Um, That's what I thought. But, I always thought. But that. the one that got me the worst of all, Tim, I don't know if you saw uh-huh. when I posted it. Um, Sarah, uh, my girlfriend, she had a recorded for me when I was out of town. The, the first episode of the Preachers of L.A. And uh-huh. I sat down to watch it, and I, and I typed on Facebook, all right, I'm about to watch the Preachers of L.A. Be back with a new joke in five, four, three, two, like that, right? Uh-huh. And I turned it on, and I had to turn it off after 40 seconds because I had my joke. And it was a, before the show even started, they had a preview of the show, and it had one of the preachers, and he said, uh, you see my bitly, you see my glory. But you don't know my story, and I'm like, is he a rapper or a preacher? There you go. They're trying to get them young people in there, honey. They need the money. That's what yeah, they do. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, 
How great of a preacher are you, okay, if what kind of pimp are you, if you can say to folks, look at my Rolls Royce, now give me some more money. It, it, it blew my mind. It blew yeah. my mind. Yeah. Yeah, folks, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, and it's I mean, it happens all the time. And, you know, people are losing their life savings, you know, hopes and dreams. I know people that didn't go to college and send their children to college because the church needed the money for something else, and they were convinced. And people who moved all over the place because they were following behind the church and these preachers. I mean, some of the stories I could tell you behind, you know, some of these people in these ministries. But, again, hopefully mm-hmm. people will see the opulent lifestyle that many of them are, you know, leading as well as seeing them as human, not as mm-hmm. a representative of God because, you know, they mm-hmm. tell people, don't see me, see the God in me, knowing that they're playing mind tricks. You know, it's a Jedi mm-hmm. mind trick. And oh, yeah. a lot of the one you were think. talking about, he said, he said, uh, God's telling you that I'm holy, so you're holy. And I'm like, man, mm-hmm. what are you doing to these people? Mm-hmm. God told you, exactly. God's telling you that I'm holy. That's what he said yeah. to them. So that means you're mm-hmm. holy. I'm like, right. you, need to re- you, need to re- you need to recheck the math and carry the one. Get out of my face. Oh, man, but, you know, we all know how that goes. But, hey, check it. You know, we're getting ready to head on up out of here. We got, like, four minutes left. I just want to give another couple of announcements here. Next week, Privilege Mutiny Part 3, we're going to talk about affirmative action. We're going to talk about the formation of the middle class, and we're going to tie that into today with the decimation of the middle class and why we have certain, you know, um, cultures in this country that are so angry, and it's just, just going to be phenomenal. So anyway, next Sunday is a three-hour show, actually, two hours streaming live. The last hour, you're going to have to call in to the number 310-982-4273 to get the rest of it. The week after that, the Sunday after that, we're going to do Black Churches Equal Black Problems with a question mark. And because it's not just real cut and dry. It's the reason why there's a question mark there as opposed to an exclamation point. But it should be a real interesting, it should be a really good show. But next week, man, be ready, you all. You know, may as well take your socks off before you listen to the show because we're going to blow them off and we're going to blow this out the water because, you know, people don't seem to understand and see how all of this is inextricably tied together. So it's important that you all understand this. After that, we will start our Confronting and Destroying Myth series, which should be actually a lot of fun. The first one is going to be about homophobia. Okay, and we're going to break some stuff down. We're going to talk about Prop 8, the Mormon church, money, where it comes from. It's just going to be a really, really good show with a lot of information coming from that show. Again, every Thursday, People of Color Beyond Faith holds a Twitter chat at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for an hour. That's every Thursday without fail. So send your questions, comments, and suggestions, or even just conversation to hashtag POCBeyondChat. Okay, on the 24th of November, People of Color Beyond Faith will be holding its first webcast or webisode, and we will be debunking post-racialism in the secular community. And Dr. Sakibu Hutchinson will be moderating that. And, again, this is an aggregation of the Black Skeptics Group, Chicago and Los Angeles, um, 
group, as well as Houston-area black nonbelievers and black freethinkers. You know, we'll have our representatives up there as well. And we're going to do this every month. And this is our first. This is our debut. It's going to come on at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1 o'clock, 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and it's on a Sunday, which means my show will come on later on that afternoon. So for those that normally listen to the show, you'll be able to see us live on the Internet. It's going to be fed live to our YouTube channel, which is People of Color Beyond Faith. That is our YouTube channel. Go out and subscribe to us. And this is going to be fun. We'll be taking questions and comments on YouTube as well as that Twitter handle. We're going to bring you a webcast every month. We're doing an online conference. The Valentine's Day weekend, so 14th, 15th, and 16th of February of next year, we're going to do a weekend online conference. We're bringing it to you. You don't have to come to us. We're going to come to you. We're going to have a variety of topics with this monthly series as well as that conference. Our first physical conference will be in Los Angeles the middle of October 25th, 2014, and we are looking forward to seeing you, Travis. And, and uh, we always <laughs> thank you guys, and, you know, we want to see you guys. Again, I'll be at the conference in Los Angeles, October of 2014. I'll also be at the African Americans for Humanism Conference February 1st in D.C. Additionally, April 25th and 26th, we will be in Baltimore, Maryland. People of color beyond faith is collaborating with Morgan State University, and we're putting together a panel on secularism, atheism. Dr. Hutchison, Raina, and myself will be on that panel. We look forward to seeing you. Have a good weekend, everybody. Thank you. Have a good one to you, too. Take care.